This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. John chapter 14, in the Word of God tonight, John chapter 14, we'll get there in a moment. Good to see you tonight. Let me mention a book that I don't think I've mentioned yet. It's called The Revival Journey. It could be called Seasons of Refreshing from the Presence of the Lord. It's dealing with the phases of revival. In the scripture, and obviously illustrated throughout history, there are discernible phases. In other words, I'm moving beyond the concept of personal revival that we've dealt with primarily thus far in this meeting uh, to the concept of what is sometimes called corporate revival or the greater movings of God. And it starts when there's someone, usually it's one or two or three, there's a handful of people that realize there must be more. In other words, they're grateful they're saved. They know they're on their way to heaven, but they know there's got to be more this side of heaven. And that awakening launches, launches them on a journey. So that leads to phase two, when I call that one seeking God's reviving presence, as was just sung. Yeah, they, they get thirsty. They realize there's more. There's that awakening to need and that hunger and that thirst, and they begin to seek God, perhaps not really knowing how, but they go to God and say, God, there's, there's got to be more, and they begin to cry out. And, you know, the Bible makes it clear that when you seek him, he will be found of you. And that is repeated all throughout the Old and New Testaments. In the New Testament, draw nigh to God. Draw near. We're far too content with being far away. <laughs> but draw near to God. And he'll draw near to you. <laughs> oh, wow. It's a marvelous study. That leads to phase three. I like to call that God has come. I take those three words right out of the history books because many times... The people of God, in response to the manifest presence of God, will say, God has come. He's here. Expressions like this. And they're talking about what the Bible calls the outpouring of the Spirit, which is defined for us in Ezekiel 39 as God manifesting His presence. Because there is a difference between God's omnipresence and His manifest presence. Friends, we know God is everywhere present. But right now in the Chesapeake, Norfolk, Virginia Beach, Portsmouth area, there are thousands of people that are not conscious of God at all. God is not in their thoughts at all. But friends, if God were to pour out His Spirit on this vicinity, then every creature with a spirit... By that I mean every human being saved or lost would be arrested with an awareness of the presence of God. Now, friends, we need that. We need Him. We need people face to face with God. And that leads to phase four, which is brokenness. When you see God for who he is, you see sin for what it is. And when you see sin for what it is, you stop trying to cover it up and make excuses and you cry out and confess. It's just what happens. 
Brother Davis was telling me that when he was an ensemble uh, up in Canada, he was in a meeting where Ralph Sutera and Lou Sutera uh, were preaching, and there was, there was a move of God going on, and there was brokenness, and there's confession. See, that's what happens when the presence of God explodes in the atmosphere. You either get on your face or you run, and both happen. But you know that brokenness is the way into blessing, and the blessing is phase five, life again. Life again. You see, re is again. Vive is life. And so uh, with that, uh, when, you're, when you're broken, he cleanses you and he restores you and he fills you again and you experience the life of Jesus again, afresh and anew. It's life again. And so uh, this book uh, details those phases and uh, there's a final chapter that deals with some of the related truths. It's really important because, uh, you know, there are widening circles you know, before there's ever a great revival, there's little revivals. So when you start hearing about little revivals, get excited. 20 years ago, you didn't hear beans, but I'm telling you, about 10 years ago, you started hearing, hey, here's a touch over here, here's a touch over here. Most of it was over in the Assembly of God and the Nazarene and some of the Southern Baptists. But finally, we started hearing about some independent Baptists getting touched. It was 2016. <laughs> and that was encouragement to me <laughs> uh, because you almost feel like we're getting passed by. And... Uh, uh, there may be some reasons for that. But nonetheless, uh, there was some encouraging things happened in 2016. And the move of God in North Carolina, you probably heard about it. It was a move of God over in West Virginia, the Appalachian Awakening. That was a stunning move of God. And there was a move of God up in York, PA, two years ago. That was another independent Baptist church. Meeting broke open and went nine weeks. It's pretty amazing and so forth. Well, I mention that because before you ever have the big revivals that get written about in books, you have those kind, these spurts, these little fires that beget big fires. And so that uh, it's important for us to understand that uh, there's dangers in revival. We deal with some of that because Satan hates it. He really does. He hates it. He tries to throw a wrench in it, throw a a, a, a sh another stream that's not a God stream. And you have side by side dual streams that muddy the waters. We need to understand that. Satan hates revival. You know, God's working this week. But I will tell you, a couple hours ago, I was being so buffeted, it was, I didn't even hardly want to come. And then it hit me, that's the enemy. My dad used to say, you know, when the devil was cremating him, <laughs> he'd finally get inside and say, wait a second, the devil always overplays himself. God must be wanting to do something. Now, friends, we need to understand there is an enemy, but God is far greater. And so that last chapter goes into some of those details. Well, I was planning on preaching another message tonight, but as the service progressed, I feel strangely moved to have us go to John 14, in the Word of God tonight. And we will perhaps, we'll hit tomorrow night what we were going to do tonight. We'll see how the Lord leads. But we're going to shift gears from the personal revival theme that we've been on to the corporate revival theme that I have just been describing. We're going to go at it from a passage that's absolutely fascinating. I mentioned to you the other night, John 14, 15, and 16. These chapters deal with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
And there is a foundation for faith for the greater moves of God that's given to us right here in the New Testament that I want us to consider tonight. So John 14, and our text is verse 12. Verily, verily. That is, amen, amen. That's the two words underneath that. <laughs> truly, truly, this is the truth. Now remember, this is Jesus speaking. If you have a red letter Bible, you see that. Jesus says, verily, it is true. I'm saying to you, he who believes on me, the works I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do because I go to my Father. Now, friends, what is that talking about? And sometimes people say, well, you know, he, you know, he sent the Spirit, and now the Spirit's in all of us, and that's, that's the greater works. No, no, no. It says greater works than these shall he do, singular. There's a dynamic that's going to change because of Calvary and Pentecost that allows an individual believer to be in touch with God in a way where the great, glorious, extraordinary God is displayed because of the simple faith of a human being. He who believes, is believing, keeps believing on me. As simple as salvation. But here's a different promise. The works... That I do, Jesus said, shall he do also. That alone is stunning. And greater. <laughs> and greater works than these shall he do. Because I go to my father and that's where he sat down at the right hand of the father having regained the authority that Adam lost in the garden. And now that authority can be mightily displayed. The title of the message tonight is From Greater Words to Greater Works. We need the help of the Spirit tonight. Let's ask Him for that help. Blessed Lord, we look to you now. Oh, Holy Spirit. Breathe on us tonight. My heart resonated as Pastor sang. The thirsty, come. Lord, I sensed on Saturday night there's a thirst here in this place among many. Now, Lord, accomplish your purpose. I don't want to fabricate anything of man, but Lord, what's of you? That's what we're asking for. Open our eyes, Lord. Knock out unbelief. Move us from wishful thinking to a convinced confidence in your will and your power for this age before you return. And so, Lord, give us understanding to greater works and give us understanding to our responsibility. And may no one dismiss themselves as not being responsible. Lord, I plead the blood of Jesus to protect us from the attack of the enemy who so seeks to just disrupt and hinder and get in the way. Lord Jesus, I claim the victory that you won when you said it is finished to your shed blood. 
And you won over the world, the flesh, and the devil himself. And Lord, we claim that victory through no merit of our own, but solely through your merit. And in your name, we exercise your authority over any powers of darkness that are seeking to hinder the work of Jesus Christ here in our hearts and in this place and at this time. Lord Jesus, may you be lifted up tonight. May we revel in you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1947, two elderly ladies got burdened once again to pray for God to display himself. Their names were Peggy and Christine. Their last name was Smith. They lived in Scotland. They actually lived in the outer Hybrides Islands off the northwest coast. They lived on the largest island, which is Lewis. In our world today, it takes about two hours to drive from north to south, about 40 minutes from east to west. Most of it is peat bogs, except for some mountains in the south. Cold country. These ladies were up in years. They were in their 80s. But they did not write themselves off as not having any responsibility before God and his kingdom cause. One was blind. The other was seriously crippled with arthritis. I've seen pictures, very bent over, almost like an L. But in 47, they got burdened because the churches across the island seemed dead and dull, especially among the young people, not so much the adults, but the young people, because they had had a great revival. In fact, Lewis had had many revivals. The last revival was just far enough back that these teenagers did not remember it because it had been eight years since they'd seen a revival. The last one was 1939. And they knew they were out of season. And they knew those teenagers didn't know the power of what happens when Jesus is manifest in the atmosphere. And people fall in love with Jesus. And so they began to pray. In the little village of Barvis on the west coast of Scotland, there by those cold waters and waves hitting, they had a little peat fire. They would sit in front and they would pray, God, you've moved before. You must move again. You are not a respecter of persons. You love these young people too, but they don't know you yet. They might be saved, but they don't know your power. And they prayed. And weeks turned into months. A couple of times a week, they had this faithful prayer meeting. And then one night, God breathed on the little prayer meeting of these two ladies. You know, <laughs> God can manifest his presence with one or two, just like he can with 900. And God so met with them that night that a promise came alive to them. Isaiah 44 
and verse 3. For I will pour water on him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour out of my spirit. That verse came alive so powerfully as the presence of God was felt in their little building, their little cottage, that they became convinced that God meant to do what he said in those words and that revival, therefore, was coming. And with that confidence, they announced to their pastor, James Mackay, pastor of the Church of Scotland, in, it's all they had over there, Barvis, and they announced to him, Revival is coming. You'd best get the men together and pray with us now for God to manifest what he said. Well, apparently this pastor respected these ladies because he didn't blow them off. And so he gathered some men that later became known as the praying men of Barvis. John Smith and others they met out in the accounts. It says a barn. It's not really a barn. It's got a different purpose, but it's the best word that helps us understand. An outbuilding. And they began to meet several times a week and pray for God to move. The ladies continued in their own prayer meeting, now asking God to do what he had already promised to do. So they're praying in confidence. The men aren't. <laughs> they're not there yet. And they're kind of beating the air. One night, a young deacon, I think it was John Smith, read Psalm 24. And uh, actually before he read it, he said to the others, he said, you know, it just seems so much humbug to me for us to be praying here if we don't have clean hands. And a pure heart. And then he read from Psalm 24, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. And he stopped. And in that dark, damp, cold outbuilding, he lifted his hands upward and he said, Oh God! Are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? And the Spirit of God fell on those men and he fell on his face because that's what you do when God shows up. Now flat on their faces, the presence of God so real, those men became convinced. God's going to move. And they covenanted together that they would continue in prayer now, ask, thanking God for what he promised to do, but now asking him to manifest it in a greater way yet. And they covenanted together that they would not cease praying until God had made, and this is their wording, quoting from the scripture, Jerusalem again a praise in the land. In other words, God meeting with his people. So now we're several months into it, and now the confidence has moved from the ladies to the men. And so now you have a widening circle 
of those that are no longer in the vein of wishful thinking. They're now convinced they've got the promise. God's going to do it. Now they're not asking God for whether or not he's going to do it. No, they're thanking him. They're praising him. He's going to do it, but God, you've got to manifest it. See, there's a shift in the praying. And so the weeks continued on. They continued to meet now in faith and confidence out there in the outbuilding and the ladies still in front of the pink fires in the cottage. And the best I can tell, we have a period of about 18 months that describe what I'm telling you. Toward the end of that 18 months, there was an anticipation that arose in their hearts. That comes from the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and he's the one that authors faith, faith as you look unto Jesus. And uh, they began to sense it was God's time to move. Now it's wintertime. Uh, they're coming into uh, uh, not uh, far from December. I think it was November at the time. And they began to sense that it was time to, to call a meeting. They called it a mission. We would call it a revival meeting. And so now they're praying, God, God, who, who, who should come and preach? And, and uh, James Mackay, the pastor, was over at a convention on the mainland of Scotland. And he heard about an evangelist by the name of Duncan Campbell. And there's a whole story of how God prepared him in a remarkable way for this moment. But this, Pastor Mackay sensed that's the man. The Spirit of God said, that's the man. You need to invite Duncan Campbell. So he came rushing back uh, over to the island of Lewis and he wanted to tell the sisters, I know who God wants us to invite. And they said, we already know his name is Duncan Campbell. <laughs> so they quickly wrote a letter to the island of Skye where Campbell was at the time and invited him to come in December of 1949. Campbell was scheduled to be at another convention in Skye and wrote back and declined. Well, they wouldn't take no for an answer. So they wrote him again. And Campbell said there was something in the appeal for Barvis. He knew God was doing something. He wanted to go. But ethics are ethics. He's scheduled to be in Sky, and he wrote back and said, I cannot come. When Mackay told the sisters, they said, that's what man says. God has said otherwise. <laughs> He will be here within a fortnight, which is two weeks. So they wrote him a third letter. By the time he got the third letter, the convention in Sky had to cancel because there was another secular thing going on and they didn't have any hotel rooms or bed and breakfast rooms left. And he was free to come. And so he made his way and took a ferry boat and arrived in Stornoway on the east coast of the island of Lewis. And uh, he gets there. He's tired. He's probably disheveled. Any picture of Duncan Campbell, his hair is messed up. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and he gets out, and the praying men of Barvis were there to meet him. He's got a suitcase, and they looked at him. Are you walking with God? Well, Campbell was a little, you know, kind of disoriented. And he said, well, I can at least say that I fear God. Campbell said later, apparently that was good enough because they let him get in the car. <laughs> As they began to drive westward across the island to the west coast of Lewis, 
to Barvis. Campbell said he began to sense that these men were on a high plane with God and that revival had already come. He's right about that, just ready for the circles to widen and that he would be privileged to be a part in what God was already doing. And so they had told the village church that they would have a 10-day mission. That's how they did it in those days. Duncan Campbell preached and nothing happened because God lets everybody know it's not in the man. And he preached again and nothing happened. <laughs> and somewhere on the third or fourth night, Campbell preached again. An auditorium, oh, maybe half the size of this one. I've been there. And he dismissed. People filed out. There was a kind of a hush. One of the intercessors, one of the praying men was over in the corner. On his face, in tune with heaven. Agonizing before the Lord. A deacon was standing at the door. And he looked out at the door. And he said to Duncan Campbell, Mr. Campbell, come, see what's happened out here. And as they looked out into what we would call the parking lot, the congregation was standing there, but they were not fellowshipping. And they were not talking. They were just standing there with apparent distressed looks on their faces. There was a holy presence there. The intercessor in his agony of soul cries out inside the building and with no human leadership that crowd of people filed back in. It's 9 o'clock. As they came back in, doors opened in the village houses of people that hadn't come to the meeting, had no intentions to, and now they were drawn by the divine magnetism of the manifest presence of the Spirit of Jesus because he's attractive. And now they had a greater crowd than they had at 7, at 9. And Duncan Campbell preached in an atmosphere that was altogether different because now the powers of darkness have been banished. God had rent through the heavens. He had torn through the powers of the air. They had to leave and God came down. And friends, when you have an atmosphere where every enemy is bound and the Holy Spirit is manifest, that's when this word has what the scripture calls free course, no hindrance, no powers of the air to interfere with the minds of man. That's when it's glorified, where glory has the concept of weight in it. That's when the weight of truth comes down. And yes, Eyewitnesses that I met in 2000 told me <laughs> that service went through the night. It just continued on. The presence of God was so felt, people would cry out to God for mercy. One dear man told me, he said right over there, he says, I was saved right over there that night in the wee corner of the building. 
Well, that service went to 4 a.m. Micaiah went over to see the two sisters. See, they weren't able to come because of the arthritis and blindness. And so he wanted to tell them that the revival they'd been praying for had come. And they said, we already know. They said last night, we were pleading that one promise. I will pour water on him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour out of my spirit. And they said, God, you gave us a covenant. We would use the word promise. And they said, God, for every covenant you give us, there must be a moment of fulfillment. And so you must fulfill what you said you would do. You said you would do it. Now you've got to manifest it. And they told James Mackay that they kept praying through the night until they saw the enemy retreating and our wonderful lamb taking the field. And that 10-day meeting stretched into three years as Duncan Campbell moved from village to village to village to village across the Isle of Lewis, one of the greatest revivals of the mid-20th century. Now, friends... What happened? What is that? Words in a cottage to two ladies became works. Greater words became greater works. And friends, we have a verse where Jesus tells us, look, he who believes, he who depends, he who will not take no for an answer. He who believes on me, the works that I do shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. Friends, is it not time for the church of the 21st century to believe in Jesus for those greater works? Now, what's involved? I want us to see several principles right here in this text. First of all, there is a connection between the words of God and the works of God. There's a connection between the words of God and the works of God. This is fascinating to me. We know from Romans 10, 17 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's literally the rhema, the specific word of God, okay? So uh, you have to have the word, the truth. The, the, the truth of God is the foundation of faith. And so that's what we need to recognize. You say, well, I see the word works in verse 12. Where's words? It's in verse 10. Jesus says, believest thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words, and that's the plural of rhema that you see in Romans 10, 17. The words that I speak unto you, I speak not from myself, but the Father who dwells in me, he does the works. Oh, wait a second. He wasn't talking about works. He's talking about words. Do you see that switch right midstream? You see, there's a connection between the words of God and the works of God. The words of God form the foundation of faith for the works of God. The works of God are the fulfillment of faith for the words of God. And there's your link stated for us right there in verse 10. Now, friends, verse 12 happens to be made up of words. Words of God. <laughs> he who believes on me. You see, there's a connection. That's what happened when those ladies, see, Duncan Campbell asked them, 
He said, how could you be so confident that revival was coming? You tell your pastor and so on. How could you be so confident? They said, that night. We had such a consciousness of God. See, there's your outpouring. The manifest presence of God. Such a consciousness of God that it produced a confidence in his words. And the words that were before them were Isaiah 44, verse 3. And they took them. And that's how they knew revival's coming. Why? They had the words. And they understood when God actually gives you the words, when it's not wishful thinking, when it's not you trying to force it on God, but when the Spirit of God so convinces you of the words of God, it's God telling you, this is my will, you trust me, and it'll happen. See, remember God's economy. God stirs. Man has to respond. Then God works. And see, we've got to recognize the stirrings of God or we miss out. Because when God stirs you, it's the will of God. And they knew that. And when they got stirred that night and the presence of God was that real, they knew, they had confidence, God's going to do this. And that's how they could say, revival is coming. I was in a revival in 2003 that was a real deal revival. And the night the fire fell, a quiet intercessor said to me before the surface, sir, I didn't know him well at the time. At all. I didn't know him well at all. He said, God is going to do something special in this service tonight. That church has never been the same. God came. He ripped that thing open. You talk about confession. You talk about on your face, head to toe. By the way, none of that's weird. When the presence of God is that real, you just get down. And so on. That's what we're talking about here with these ladies. Number two. Faith is the necessary link to move from the words to the works. Faith is the necessary link to move from the words to the works. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me. The works, and he goes on. Okay, so there's your link. It's as simple as John 3, 16. He who believes on Jesus should not perish but have everlasting life. And when somebody exercises dependence on Jesus based on words, they have everlasting life. It's that simple. It's the same truth. It's just that that's for receiving Jesus as Savior. This is for greater works. The condition is the same. It's as simple as getting saved. The promise is what differs between John 3.16 and John 14, verse 12. But faith is the necessary link, either way, to move from the words to the works. Number three, the Holy Spirit must convince you of the words in order to believe them. I mean, it's not, you know, sometimes people say, well, okay, let me try these. <laughs> That's wishful thinking. But I'm going to tell you, the Holy Spirit, he is the convincer. In fact, he's mentioned much right here in this passage. And it is interesting in verse 17, Jesus, just a couple of verses later, calls him the spirit of truth. Remember the word in John 17 is called the word of truth. In John 16, Jesus says... 
that the Spirit will guide you into all truth. That's what happened to those two ladies right in front of that peat fire that night as the Spirit manifested the presence of Jesus and those words came alive. That was the Holy Spirit. As John 16, 13 says, guiding them right into the specific truth that they could stand on. They had been crying out to God now. Days had turned into weeks, and weeks had turned into a couple of months, and now the Spirit of God says, here's your words. But friends, until the Spirit of God says that, then we're still not quite there yet, if that makes any sense. It's still wishful thinking. We can try to convince ourselves that's not the same. You see, when the Holy Spirit does that, it's what? It's, it's the authoring of faith of Hebrews 12, 2. Looking unto Jesus, you're crying out. Who authors faith? That's the Spirit convincing you. Now, it's very interesting in Hebrews 11, verse 1, faith is the substance, the reality of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That word evidence is the word that is the noun of the verb reprove in John 16, 8, when Jesus says that the Holy Spirit reproves. That is, he proves, he convinces, he convicts. So evidence is the conviction, it's the convincement, it's the proof. Look, when the Spirit of God stirs you with words, he says, there's your proof, stand on it. And it could be very simple for some simple matter of life or it could be a great awakening. The point is, the Holy Spirit has to stir us. It's God who works in you. We saw that two nights ago. Remember that? In God's economy, the cash is faith. It's not automatic. You can resist or you can respond. But the truth is, faith is always a response. Always. Because God works in you. There's divine initiation both to will, there's your faith response. And when you do, then he enables you to do according to his good pleasure. So there it is. The Holy Spirit is the guide to bring you to faith. The Holy Spirit is the one who convinces you of the words and thus authors faith. Number four, believing words for works precedes believing greater words for greater works. Now, this is really simple, but it's important for us to get it. Believing, can I say, regular words? <laughs> for regular works, the normal Christian life precedes believing greater words for greater works. It's interesting that Jesus said, He who believes in me, the works that I do shall he do, and greater. Before he said greater, he said the regular. You and I can never trust God for the greater works if we can't even trust him for the regular works. And that is why American Christianity has got to wake up to the fact that God has given us a provision. You are in Jesus. Jesus is in you. Take him and stop letting the, the, the flesh just rule everything. And friends, it's time we get down to business. What is God going to have to allow within the shores of the United States to awake Awaken the American church. If we can't wake up with what's going on now, <laughs> we might be forever drugged. But friends, God wants us to wake up. And I know right now many are saying, well, it's all over, it's done, you know, the, cl the clock is kick uh, clicking. I think it is, the eschatological clock. I think it's been clicking since 1948. But uh, nonetheless, we don't know the exact details. 
and the Holy Spirit that was sent on the day of Pentecost has not been sent back yet. And while in the last days perilous times shall come, yes, all of that is true, Acts 2 also says that in the last days I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. So you have parallel truths that while there's perilous times and debauchery and man, worse and worse and all of that, there's still the promise that in the last days says, God, I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. You know, have you ever caught the truth in Peter where, where Jesus delays his coming? Why? Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know, it's in the heart of God to send a great awakening before Jesus comes. He's got to have somebody come back to get. <laughs> and if God spared Nineveh, yet 40 days, the preacher Jonah said, but they repented. And 40 days turned into 150 years before that judgment fell. And according to the last book, last verse of the book of Jonah, it was for the sake of 120,000 young people because they weren't responsible for the sins of their parents. Now, friends, we've got a whole generation here in the USA that's not responsible for the sins of their parents. And God prefers to give people a chance before judgment falls. You see it over and over again. There's these revivals that delay judgments. You see it with Judah repeatedly. God prefers to save the savable and revive the revivable before that judgment falls. And every judgment is a call to repentance and revival except the last one. <laughs> and friends, the population increase demands a great awakening. It really does. Because there was only 300 million people on the planet when Jesus walked this earth. That's less than the USA today and we're not a vastly populous nation. 1,000 years later, it had grown only by 10 million, 310 million people, 1,000 AD. By 1,500, at the time of the Reformation, it had grown from 310 million to 500 million. Still not massive. 400 years later, 1,900, it had spiked from 500 million to 1.5 billion and from 1900 to the year 2000, it had spiked again from 1.5 billion to over 7 billion, and now that is exceeded. That is why the stats tell us that there are as many people living today on the planet that has, as have ever lived in human history. That's why. And that means without a great awakening, hell will double in one generation. But with a great awakening, heaven will double. Amen. Now, friends, that's in the heart of God. God loves these people. And so the truth of the matter is, this is what God wants to do, but, but if we can't even trust God for patience, for purity, for witnessing, how are we going to trust him for the greater works? It's time to get serious about believing God for just everyday stuff. Because that's when he taps you on the shoulder and says, all right, now let me show you something greater I want you to believe me for. You're ready now. Do you get it? So that's how it works. As you believe God for the simple things of life, it strengthens your faith. And then God stirs you to trust him for greater works. 
the outpourings, a great harvest. Friends, the filling of the Spirit is when God fills you with His life. That ought to be daily for us. The outpouring of the Spirit is when God fills the atmosphere with His life. The filling of the Spirit, according to Ephesians 5.18, is to be daily. It is to be continual. The outpouring of the Spirit, according to Acts 3.19, is seasonal. Seasons of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Now, friends, we need a season. And America's had them. We have had them. 1740s, when we're just the colonies. First Great Awakening peaked in 1741 and 42. George Whitfield, oh man, and uh, uh, so many other voices. Gilbert Tennant, Samuel Davies from Virginia here, and others used of God in that First Great Awakening. And then, of course, we had uh, the beginning of our nation. By the time you get to the 1780s, 4,000 people a day were going through Ellis Island. Not the border, Ellis Island. <laughs> the right way. Uh, 4,000 a day. 4,000 who know, knew not the power of the First Great Awakening. By the 1780s, the stats on drunkenness and immorality were like reading the stats today. You need to know that. 1780s. Immorality, drunkenness was like reading the papers today. And Isaac Bacchus up in Maine and a few others got burdened because some preachers up in England started a prayer union because they had read Jonathan Edwards from America about the importance of prayer for revival and they started to pray and these guys wrote a letter and they circulated. It's called the Circular Letter. It went out in 1795 in New England and down the eastern seaboard asking churches to set one day a quarter, four times a year, that's all. But set aside that day to seek the face of God for another great awakening. And the churches heeded the cry and they began to pray and they were so blessed by that one day a quarter it became one day a month all across New England down the eastern seaboard and then God began to move and by 1798, three years later, New England was in what we call the second great awakening. And then it swept down the eastern seaboard affecting states like Virginia and North Carolina and then it went westward into the western states which in those days was Kentucky and Tennessee and that's the great camp meeting stories and so on. And that awakening went from 1798, major surge in the 1820s, another major surge in the 1830s and began to subside in 1842. It was the longest awakening in that point, the broadest awakening we had had and made us a Christian nation. And then prosperity got the focus off of God and uh, there was other troubles and so on. And uh, there's a whole other story to the third great awakening, uh, which... Uh, the intercessory stream started in the plantations in the south. It was the slaves who knew Jesus that began to pray for God to move. And in response to that, God began to move, stirring a guy, a Dutch Reform guy named Jeremiah Lamphere to call a prayer meeting up in New York. That thing took hold. took a while, but it did. And when it did, uh, these prayer meetings from noon to 1 o'clock were just uh, uh, overwhelmed uh, with people, and the presence of God became felt. And then they started nightly services. The presence of God was so powerful in New York City that when a military ship came into harbor, the sailors uh, became aware of the presence of God and began to cry out for mercy, having no idea what was going on on the shore. And that began to go to other cities in Philadelphia and Boston as people prayed from 12 noon to 1 o'clock. It's called the prayer revival. And they would preach at night 15,000 souls a day getting saved in 1858. USA. 
when Moody caught fire. And you had another move, the Fourth Great Awakening, according to J. Edwin Orr. 1906 was the USA. It was a worldwide move. It started in South Africa in 1901. And from 1901 to 1913, 57 nations saw revival. Powerful time, 1906, Atlanta, Georgia, Denver, and these places were rocked by the power and presence of God. The legislature shutting down so everybody can go to the day of prayer. <laughs> That's a different story. And you had the big citywides with Bob Jones Sr., Billy Sunday, Sam Jones. And then the tide went back out again. Now, the only good thing about the tide going back out is it's got to come back in. <laughs> And uh, God used a guy named John R. Rice because the citywides had stopped. Billy Sunday, those guys, they weren't having them. Bob Jones started a school. <laughs> well, John Rice got burdened about the citywides again, and God used him to bring them back. And some amazing things happened up in New York State, 3,000 getting saved, and a meeting up there. And that paved the way for a guy named Billy Graham. These are the facts of history. I'm going to tell you, in the 1940s, Graham was on fire. Early 1950s, on fire. And uh, maybe some, I won't go into all the details, but there was a move of God then. Then that subsided. The next one was 1970. 1971, 1972. God was in the land. Asbury College had a service that went for 189 hours. The Canadian revival, right after uh, Pastor Davis was in that uh, meeting with Ralph and uh, Louis Sutera, they soon after were over in Saskatoon, and that meeting broke open, and then they had to ask the Anglicans for their building, and the Presbyterians for their building, and then finally they ended up in a civic auditorium, 4,000 people a night coming, and Western Canada being rocked. The Jesus movement. Same time, God was in the land. You say, oh, that's a bunch of hippies. How could that be God? I'm going to tell you, when they leave marijuana parties and go to Bible studies, you can't chalk it up to the devil. <laughs> you go to 1 John 4, it passes the test. I don't have time to detail it, but it does. They didn't all become independent Baptists, but I'm going to tell you, God was moving. <laughs> Calvary Chapel went from nothing to exploding all across the West Coast, baptizing scores of people in the ocean. And independent Baptists went from very, very small beginnings to, by the end of the 1970s, having, or at least saying they did, the largest church in almost every state of the Union. The Southern Baptists, who had become so liberal it was tragic, had a resurgence. Unprecedented in history. Would not have happened without God being in the land. Early 1970s. And the tide went back out. And there was a lesser move in 1995 that affected Southern Baptist Assembly of God and Nazarenes. It was powerful, not quite as powerful as 1970. It was powerful. Independent Baptists got missed on it. That's why you don't know about it. Maybe we got too arrogant thinking it couldn't happen anywhere but us. And here we are, 2021, seasons of refreshing from the present. Do you see it, folks? This is what God does. This is what God does. And it's time for us to go to God and say, God, we need you. But we don't want the wishful thinking stuff. God, step in, stir us, open our eyes. Don't let us just fake ourselves out. God, would you convince us just like you've done so many others throughout history. God, we're thirsty. Finally, the expression of faith 
for the outpouring of the Spirit, for greater works, is asking in Jesus' name. I mentioned to you last night that when there are facts, I think it was last night, you can just take them. But the promises of God you can't take because they're not there yet. That's why Peggy and Christine Smith couldn't immediately tell the pastor revival was coming. Because it says greater works than these shall he do. Every statement, every rhema that deals not with the filling but with the outpouring is given in the future tense. Everyone. Old Testament, New Testament. If my people then will I. Isaiah 44, 3. For I will pour water on him that is thirsty. Acts 2, 17. I will pour out of my spirit. John 14, 12. Greater works than these shall he do. Which means the first step of faith when it comes to obtaining a promise is asking. Now here's what that means, folks. If we're not asking God to pour out a spirit, we don't believe in it. You say, oh, I believe in revival. Yes, you believe God can. Surely we do that. But we don't believe in the sense of trusting him to do it unless we're asking. Just like a lost man who believes Jesus can save him but never trusts Jesus to save him. So, just like the lost man must call on the name of the Lord, we must ask. In fact, the text emphasizes it. It says in verse 13, And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name. You see, the merit is not us. The merit is not how many days and weeks and months we put in. Some stories, it's 18 months like Pagan Christine Smith. Other stories, it's three months like the Moravian Revival, one of the greatest explosions of all church history, 1727. What an amazing move of God in revival. Sometimes it's 30 years like in South Africa, the great revival of 1860. I don't understand the dynamics of why that varies. I just know that when God stirs, we're to ask. We're to ask. And it's not a matter of merit that if we put in enough time. I remember a guy saying, you know, if we can get the churches to pray for two years, God will have to move. No, that's meritorious thinking. That is not what we're talking about. But the point is when God stirs you, trust me for this, that means it is God's will so we can now pray in confidence. See, that's what happened with these ladies. And then later with the men, when they uh, had that moment in the barn, they got convinced, yes, God means what he says. Thank you, God. In other words, you take what God at that moment gives. Up until then, you're asking, God, we need you. God, help us. Lord, would you stir us? You know, we know we need help. And so you're just, you know, you're, you're beating the air. But when God steps in and says, yes, you can trust me now, you can move from, uh, from that, that initial asking to taking that, praising God, and now you're simply asking God to manifest what he said. And that's what you heard the ladies do from that point onward. God, you gave us a covenant. You gave us a promise, but there has to be a moment of fulfillment. Lord, thank you that you've given us the promise. Revival's coming, but you've got to have a time when it comes. And so the praying shifts. Asking. But it's in his name. It's his merit alone. But it is trusting that when he stirs you, it's his will. And when he stirs you, he's able. You're trusting in his willingness and his ability because he says, that will I do. That will I do. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. That follows the greater works promise that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And it's as if we won't get it. So he says it again, verse 14, if you'll ask anything in my name, I will do it. Ask. Friends, if ever there was a time for God's people to get on their faces and ask, it's now. 
You know, I think of Richard Owen Roberts. He's quite up in years. A thundering voice for revival. He uh, told me, he said, uh, it was a big church and somebody ran away and man, they called these emergency prayer meetings and they cried out and pled and wept and prayed and God brought uh, things back around in restoration. He said, you know, that's wonderful. He said, but why don't they do that for revival? Well, why don't we? Maybe we wouldn't have kids running away. <laughs> now, friends, these are the words of God. And they form the foundation of faith for the works of God. And here's what happens. When you begin to trust God for the simplicity of what we've talked this week, you get your focus on Jesus. And he's now the real leader. Not my will, but yours. Not my ability, but yours. And you start trusting him, and he empowers you, and you experience that fruit of his patience and his purity and his love and all, all those wonderful uh, realities of Jesus carrying you. And uh, uh, when that becomes real in your life, you know what that means? You're in revival! And here's what happens. Personal revival forms the intercessors for greater revival. Intercessors are already in revival. That's why they're never surprised when it comes. Everybody else is shocked. It came out of heaven. Well, it came out of heaven, but it wasn't arbitrary. These intercessors had met with God earlier. And sometimes that circle widens, as I mentioned. And they become the instruments to pray and seek the blessing for those who will never seek that blessing for themselves. That's what intercessors do. So don't get mad if the whole church doesn't come to the prayer meeting. You just need some. But you need some. And the intercessors seek that presence of God manifest so that everyone else that comes into that atmosphere has a chance to get blessed. Because when you walk in an atmosphere, that's charged by the presence of God where the powers of darkness are banished and the power of the Spirit is displayed. It makes it as conducive as possible for backsliding Christians to fall on their face and get right and restored and for lost people to be awakened and saved without violating their wills. It makes it as conducive as possible. And friends, this is what God wants to do. Or Jesus would not have told us these words. Let's believe Jesus. Let's believe greater words for greater works. And friends, if we're not even serious about the regular words, then let's get serious tonight about just walking in the Spirit so that we can get serious about asking for the outpouring of the Spirit. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened and God's word has had an impact on your life as together we strive to show forth the path of life. Press on.